Okay, gang, uh, take your Bible and go to John chapter 8, if you would, please. John's Gospel, the 8th chapter. This is the second in a seven-part series of messages entitled, The I Am's of Jesus Christ. Today, it's the I am the light of the world. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to make sure you get from this is knowledge, not simply about Jesus, but of Jesus. One thing is certain in our world today, and the Bible makes this crystal clear. When it comes to skillful life management, uh, navigating your way through the uncertainties of life, the potential pitfalls that are all around us, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Now, you've said that about business, probably. You know, the secret to business, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Uh, the secret to success is not what you know, it's who you know. Let me tell you something. This book from cover to cover, beginning, middle, and end, says plainly, when it comes to skillful life management, that's handling money, that's dealing with family, that's solving marriage problems, that's raising children, that's getting by in this world, that's success versus failure. When it comes to skillful life management, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. Uh, this past week, I was up late watching the 11 o'clock local news, and I rarely stay up that late, but nonetheless, I was this particular night, and I was surprised to see another story about Hurricane Matthew cleanup in Savannah. I mean, I thought that was over, and yet there are people that are still dealing with those issues in their subdivisions or in their neighborhoods. You know, one of the things that that taught me, now, if you were the kind of person that was crying and moaning over, you know, 24 hours without power... Amy and I lived out in the woods for five days without power, okay? I lived in the backyard in my camper for five days without power. I would have told you I don't like television that much. I don't watch that much TV. But after five days with no TV, I realized I really do kind of like my TV. Uh, we didn't have air conditioning. Of course, we really didn't need it at that time. But we didn't have the comforts of home. One of the things that came to me after, gee, I wish I owned a generator. One of the things that came to me is... Life is not nearly as certain as we try and convince ourselves it is. I think sometimes we confuse comfort with certainty. The more comfortable we can make ourselves, and thank God we live lives that we have the resources, we have the abilities to make life more comfortable, more convenient for ourselves. But don't make the mistake of assuming because you're able to make your life comfortable that it is certain. All it takes is a storm like Matthew to teach us how uncertain life really is. Uh, what happened when they started talking about that cone of uncertainty? Well, people started going to the hardware store and they bought up all the batteries and they bought out all the candles and, and the lighter and lamp fuel. And I haven't waited in a gas line since the mid-70s under the Carter administration when I was a child. But during the weekend of Hurricane Matthew, I pulled into a gas station thinking, I'm just going to go ahead and fill up the vehicles. Uh, there were four cars in every line at every pump. I went to another gas station kind of out in the country. I said, I'll outsmart all these city people. I'll go to that station out in the country. Got out there, no lines, no waiting. But there was a sign that said, no gas, sorry. <laughs> During times like that, you realize how uncertain life can be. And if the Bible teaches us anything, gang, it teaches us that it's not about what you know. It's all about who you know. The gospel authors, and there are four of them, they all wrote a biography on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. They wanted their readers to know Jesus Christ. 
They wanted their readers to not just know facts about him, but to know him relationally. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the great 20th century apologist and author, he said it best when he said it plainly. What do you do with Jesus Christ? You either accept him or you reject him. The Gospels, and there are four, I call them biographies because that's what they are. They serve as a very comprehensive um, testimony to who Jesus was. If you want to know Jesus, you've got to go to the four Gospels. And what's interesting about the four Gospels is they're all a little bit different. They all look at Jesus. Their starting point, their vantage point is a little bit different than the others. Matthew, for instance. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew portrays Jesus as the son of David. When you read that long genealogy, that long family tree, that family history in the first few chapters of Matthew, you realize that it goes back through David, the king, all the way to Abraham. Because Matthew wanted his readers to understand that Jesus had royal DNA. Jesus' genealogy through Mary, his mother, not through Joseph, but through Mary, his mother, goes straight back to King David. Matthew wanted his readers to understand that Jesus has a right to the throne in Israel. Mark didn't do that. Mark records all the service activities of Jesus. Mark portrays him as the servant of God. Mark portrays Jesus as a man, the God-man, who served God by serving humanity. There are all kinds of miracles recorded in Mark's gospel because Mark wants you to understand that Jesus took time for people. Mark and his descriptions of Jesus, the way he characterizes Jesus, is very uh, reminiscent of Isaiah's words in Isaiah chapter 53, calling him the suffering servant of God. Then along comes Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke is a man of science. And if you study his genealogy in the first, I don't know, I think it's in the third chapter, you study Luke's genealogy, you find out that Luke takes Jesus' lineage not through Mary, but back through Joseph, the assumed father, even though we know he wasn't, but through Joseph, all the way back again through Abraham, and all the way back to Adam, because Luke wants his readers to understand that Jesus was indeed a man. He is often called the Son of Man in Luke's Gospel. Luke wanted you to understand that those disciples who were following Jesus were not just having some sort of vision or hallucination about Jesus, that Jesus wasn't some sort of angel that Jesus wasn't a kind of an image or a spirit, but Jesus actually was a man and Jesus would bear in his human body the sin of the world. And then we get to the fourth biography, John's gospel. John presents Jesus as the son of God. John wants you to come to the conclusion after you read his biography that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be. John wants you to know Jesus. In fact, John's is the only gospel of the four that contains all seven of the I am statements. John says right out, straight out in chapter 20 and verse 31 that I could have recorded other details of his life, but instead I chose this information. Here it comes. So that you might believe that Jesus was the son of God. Now, what's interesting about these seven statements is they're all tied to a miracle. Each of the seven I am statements is connected within a chapter or two of some kind of sign or miracle in John's gospel. Last week, Jonathan talked about the claim Jesus made in John 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. 
I can sustain you. Jesus made this claim on the heels of feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. In today's text, John chapter 8, Jesus claims to be the light of the world. And in the very next scene or the very next act, John chapter 9, Jesus gives sight to a man who is born blind. So think of the symbolism there. Jesus claims to be the light of the world to authenticate this claim, this I am statement, I am the light of the world. He gives light to a man who's grown up in darkness. Beautiful, beautiful image. The reason John does this is because John selects these specific miracles because they're of their ability to help us believe that Jesus indeed was who he claimed to be. John wants us to know him. John wants us to believe in him so that we might have eternal life. Now, the reason we want to examine these seven statements, the reason we think they're meaningful to bring to your attention is because knowing Jesus comes with all kinds of benefits, not according to me, according to this book. Knowing Jesus is about skillful life management. Knowing Jesus is about what the Bible would call transformation. The Bible says very clearly that when we know Jesus, we begin to reflect Jesus. And if you know Jesus and start reflecting Jesus in your home, your marriage is going to get stronger. If you know Jesus and you start reflecting Jesus in your family, your family is going to get stronger. In your work, on the job, success versus failure, these things matter. And we understand this from the New Testament. Here are Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. Paul says, we... With unveiled faces, that means we're uncovered, we all reflect the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, that's ongoing, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That phrase, unveiled face, is a reference back to the days of Moses. When Moses would go and meet with God on the mountain, he'd come down, the Bible says his face was glowing. It got to where he covered his face with a veil. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I behold him, I look at him, but it's not just that I look at him to know something about him. We're not memorizing facts about Jesus every Sunday when we gather. My hope is that we go grow to know him better. It's like a child who sits at the feet of a parent the feet of a big brother, the feet of some loved one, and learns about life, learns about experiences, learns about love. We are, with unveiled faces, we're covered, we're able to approach God in the person of Jesus Christ, and by knowing Jesus, we are transformed. That is a beautiful picture, a microcosm of the faith walk. So, We begin with statement number two. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Now, this to me is an easily observable truth in our reality. Typically, light is good and darkness is bad, right? If you've ever heard a noise in the middle of the night and walked through your family room and stepped on a Lego barefoot, You know that light is better than darkness. Now, we don't have kids at our house, but I'll tell you what we do have. You ever seen one of these like $16 indestructible dog bones? We got a couple of these things, okay? And I have very big dogs, and they just go at these things, and they grind away at them. And their powerful jaws and their sharp teeth, 
they create ridges and, and frayed imperfections in this bone, making them very jagged, very sharp. I don't even know why the dog wants to chew it. Because if you go through my house in the middle of the night and you step on one of those things barefoot, it's got to be every bit as painful as stepping on a Lego. Look, <clears throat> light is good. Darkness is bad. If Hollywood and the horror movie industry ever accepts this reality, they'll go out of business. Because in the movies, when the guy hears a bump in the night, it's two in the morning, what's he do? He tries to ease through his house or she tries to ease through the apartment in the dark. They pick up an umbrella or a golf club. Listen, you come to my house to cause trouble at two in the morning, you're not going to be greeted with a golf club or an umbrella, I promise you. I'm going to turn on every light in the house and point the biggest gun I've got right at you. See, that's the way most of us are in the South because common sense says light is good and darkness is bad. When someone doesn't understand or they don't have enough information or they haven't been around long enough to know how things work, what do we say of them? We say, well, give them time. They're in the dark, right? That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. If they do, however, understand, we say what? Well, they're enlightened. The scripture draws this contrast over and over again. Many, 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 many times the scripture will just juxtapose the holiness of God using the light terminology and the evil deeds of man using the darkness terminology. For instance, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, the scripture says plainly, God is light. When the Bible equates God with light, it's talking about his holiness. There is never a moment, a split second in eternity past that God has never, God has not been God-like. God is always like God. He is set apart unto himself. That's what makes him holy. And the Bible equates that with light. Romans chapter 13 and verse 12 says that there are evil deeds of darkness and we ought run from them. Evil deeds of darkness. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8 says that if you are a child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a child of light. You're children of light. In John's biography, chapter 12, verse 46, speaks of those who are lost in darkness. Again, it's very easy to see that light is good and darkness is bad. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible says that at one time we were called out of our darkness to live, quote, in his wonderful light. You see the contrast and the transition. Now, if we're going to address this second I am statement dealing with Christ's claim to be the light of the world, we have to go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. The first mention of light in contrast to darkness, as you might imagine, is in Genesis chapter 1. The second verse of Genesis chapter 1, the first book in the Bible, says plainly that God created the heavens, that's the universe, and the earth. And then it says... The earth was formless, the earth was empty, and the earth was dark. That's Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. Now, scholars disagree as to exactly what this means. Some say it means literally what it says, that in the beginning, God created the solar system, the universe, and God created the earth. But at that time, the earth was formless. It was empty, and it was dark. <clears throat> that means there was no sun in our universe, in our solar system. Um, I tend to favor another interpretation of that idea, and it is this. In the beginning, God's imagination could see the universe, 
He could visualize the earth. But at that stage, it was formless. He could have made the earth square if he wanted to. He could have made it flat like they used to think it was back in the days of Christopher Columbus. He could have made the universe this way or that way. But instead, when he shone light upon it, verse 3, God said, let there be light. The imagination of God took on form, was filled and enlightened, and it became reality. Now, stop and think about this for a minute. If what once was formless, empty, and dark can become form-filled or shaped or orderly, filled and illuminated, the difference between the first and the last is light. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 18, or John chapter 8. Jesus came into a formless, empty, darkened world and offered light. Now, what's interesting to me about this is, in contrast to the light that Jesus brings to the community is the darkness of the Pharisees' hearts. The Pharisees, in case you don't know this, they were like professional religious supermen. These men basically were paid to be righteous, paid to be spiritual. These men believed that they were the only ones who could see clearly. They were the only ones who had the light and that the commoners, the common folk, well, they were ignorant. Anyone who would follow after a carpenter's son from Nazareth who claims to be the light of the world or the bread of life must surely be ignorant. But according to the Gospels, the most religious people in the community had it exactly backwards because Jesus pointed his finger in their face and said, they're not the blind ones, you're the blind ones. They're not living in darkness, you're living in darkness. Now, I bring that to your attention because I think it bears, I think it bears the same testimony in today's modern church. Sometimes churched people steeped in their tradition, steeped in their way of doing things, assume that they are somehow closer to God than anyone else. That somehow they see things, they understand, my favorite term, the deeper things of God, more so than the average common Joe. Let me tell you something. Faith in Jesus Christ is far simpler than most people make it out to be. Over the 20 plus years of history of this church, people have left this church because they've said, I'm not deep enough. When I teach, I don't go deep enough. We, I'd like to hear more of the deeper things of God. I just love hearing that from somebody whose marriage has fallen apart. You know? To me, it's pretty deep to keep your marriage strong. To me, it's pretty deep to be a good father. To me, it's pretty deep to be a, an honoring wife. To me, it's pretty deep to manage your money financially being responsible. These are deep concepts that are addressed in the scripture. Don't come to me and tell me you're searching for the deeper things of God when you can't keep your life on the tracks. That has no, carries no weight with me whatsoever. If you, one of the, one of the, the ironic things there is, sometimes people equate the deeper things with God with things that sound confusing. So like if I leave church and I'm just like totally confused and bewildered, I don't even know how that's relevant to me. Well, then that means it's deep. Look, I can do deep. If you want to leave here on a Sunday, I can blow you away with 30 minutes of depth. You'll walk out of here scratching your head saying, I'm not sure what I believe. Let me tell you something. When Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, we don't have to go into some deep alternate universe to understand some twisted interpretation. He means what he says he means. Look, 
John chapter 7 through 9 are set during an eight-day festival called the Feast of the Tabernacles. So when Jesus makes this statement, it's right there during the Feast of the Tabernacles. This was an eight-day celebration. God's people celebrated His leading them, His guidance and care for them through their 40-year wanderings through the wilderness. Remember the book of Exodus? Moses is in charge. He's leading the people, but the people rebelled, and God made them wander around. But during their wandering, He took care of them. So, very often during this Feast of Tabernacles, people would take palm branches, and they would build makeshift tents on the roof of their house, and they'd go up there and sleep in honor or celebration of God's people living in tents back in the days of the Exodus. Early in the morning, the priests would get up and they'd go to the pool of Siloam and they'd bale some water, they'd bring it into the temple courtyard where people had gathered, and they'd pour it out on the altar. That signified that during that time of wandering, God provided water for his people. Jesus is there and he's teaching the people. When he sees the priests pour out the water, according to chapter 7 and verse 37, Jesus took that opportunity to say, if you'll come to me, you'll never go thirsty. And in a very similar kind of illustration or object lesson, every night the priests would go around and light four very large candelabras and they would illuminate the temple courtyard. And this was done to signify how God led his people in the Exodus days by a pillar of fire at night. Now, they weren't, God didn't command these people to pour the water, to light the candles. These were human traditions and there wasn't anything wrong with them. But as you'll see in a moment, they had exchanged the glory of God, the reality and simplicity of there stands God in the flesh for their own human traditions. Perhaps at the end of the eight-day festival, when the priest went around and extinguished all of those candles, like he did with the pouring of the water, Jesus seized that opportunity and spoke the words of our text in John chapter 8 and verse 12. Look at verse 12. Jesus spoke again to the people and he said, I am the light of the world. Not a light, not one of many lights. This is an exclusive claim of Jesus Christ. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. One of the proof positive signs of regeneration, spiritual regeneration, I have become a child of God, is life change. Even the most moral among us, even the most tightly laced traditional prudish moralists in the church upon receiving authentic faith in Jesus Christ, deciding to turn our lives over to him, their lives begin to change. That's what Jesus means when he says, if you follow me, if you're sincere, you're not going to walk in darkness. You're not going to live in darkness. You're not going to reside in darkness because it's no longer in you to want to stay there. You're going to walk in light. Verse 13, the Pharisees then challenged him. I'll have something to say about that at the end. Here you are, they said, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. You see, according to their Old Testament law, if you made a claim in a capital case, you couldn't make the claim by yourself without a witness. I couldn't just stand up and say, this is true. I had to have someone there willing to stand with me. So they point their finger at him and they challenge him. They interrupt him and say, you're making a claim on your own. Your testimony is not valid. Verse 14. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I have came from and I know where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from 
and no idea where I am going. Think about this for a second. Like many of us, the Pharisees saw life first on the horizontal and last on the vertical. You see, there he stood. The culmination of their Old Testament faith, their Messiah. He stood right in front of them. There he was. But they could only see his flesh. They couldn't see his deity. They could only see his humanity. They couldn't see his divinity. They're stuck on this horizontal plane, like many of us. They search exhaustively horizontally before they ever think to go vertical. And that's the gripe that Jesus has with them. That's why he says, look, I know who I am. I know where I came from. You don't. I'm the light. You're still walking in darkness. Okay, here's kind of the main thought of today. I want to make sure you get this. Here it is. Whatever the spiritual question, Jesus is the answer. Whatever the spiritual question, Jesus is the answer. Now, I bring that to your attention because sometimes we laugh about this in our children's ministries. You know, back there now, your little three-year-olds, they're being taught by loving and devoted teachers. Your four- and five-year-olds in the pre-K department, they're being taught by loving and devoted teachers. And at some point during the lesson, the teacher will ask the question. You know, it could be a lesson about Noah. It could be a lesson about Paul. It could be a lesson about Adam and Eve. But in the preschool and beginner department, nine out of ten answers are always the same. Regardless of the question, your kid looks at the teacher and says, Jesus... It could be a completely unrelated question, but your child is going to come up with Jesus. Let let me tell you something. We do ourselves a grave disservice by outgrowing that simple theology. We really do. Because whatever your spiritual problem, whatever your spiritual question, whatever it is, if it's money related, if it's marriage related, if it's relationship related, if it's purity related, if it's success related, job related, career related, family related, Jesus is the answer. That's why I love that image. Paul says, you know, if your life is formless, it's a little ragged around the edges. If you're battling some emptiness and you're looking to fill it, if it's dark and you're longing for light, go and sit before Jesus with an unveiled face, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to start to reflect His glory. And it's going to be ongoing, and it's going to be transformational. Whatever the spiritual question, Jesus is the answer. This is the simple, basic, repetitive cycle of the faith walk. I mean, wherever you are, whatever you're facing, I promise you, Jesus is The answer, that is what's being communicated when he says, I am the light of the world. I came to bring shape and form and order to the formless. I came to fill that which is empty. And I came to shine light in the darkness. But the Pharisees still didn't get it. They didn't get it. Their hearts were hardened. They remained in the darkness. So he goes on, verse 15. He says, you judge by human standards. That's all they knew. I pass judgment on no one. Boy, isn't that nice. In John chapter 3, verse 17, follows the world famous John 3, 16. John told Nicodemus, or Jesus told Nicodemus, 
The Son of Man didn't come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. Do you realize Jesus was the only one in that situation that could have come to the world to judge us? He's the only one with the right. He was the only one with the position, with the authority, with the holiness, with the righteousness. But they didn't get that. Because they didn't get that they were sinners. I wonder if we get it. Um, let me do a quick illustration. I need you to help me with this. Would you raise your hand, please, if you've ever told a lie? Would you please raise your hand? Okay. Listen, I see several hands not raised. If somebody's by you and they're not raising your hand, you point to them, call them a liar right now. Okay? Okay, now you can put your hand down. Thank you. <clears throat> um, now, I'll admit that I've done this next one, so don't be afraid to participate. If you've ever taken something that doesn't belong to you, if you've ever stolen, would you please lift your hand? Okay. Again, there's there, most of you. Okay, good. Now, th- this last one is a little tricky. <clears throat> um, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, if you've ever looked at someone with lust in your heart, you've basically committed adultery in the spiritual sense. So if you've, now, yeah, if you've ever, now wait before you raise your hands. You may be here with your wife and you just want to kind of give me one of these. That's fine. Okay. Uh, You might just a little nod will be sufficient. But if you have ever looked at someone with lust in your heart, would you raise your hand? I have. Okay. In the first service, guy in the back, he goes like this. Thinking, Wow. Okay. <clears throat> now, if you have lied, the Bible would call you a liar, right? If you have stolen, taken something that doesn't belong to you, the Bible would call you a thief. If you have looked at someone with lust in your heart, the Bible would call you an adulterer. So, welcome to Grace Community Church, a church full of liars, thieves, and adulterers. <laughs> Think about that. Now look, we all get it. We all know who we are. We all, I hope and pray, recognize our need not for a do-over, not for a second opportunity, not for a better teacher or a stronger church. We recognize our need for a Savior. But the Pharisees didn't. Pharisees didn't. Because they only saw horizontally. Verse 16. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I'm one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. You see, here's how this is supposed to work. And I think that's why John links these statements with a miracle. Jesus testifies on his own behalf as one. I am the light of the world. The evidence is the miracle. The evidence that the Father is with him is the miracle. Again, in John 3, his conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus says, I know, I know there's something about you. Because no one could do the things you do if the Father... We're not with him. <clears throat> now, very quickly, and I'll quit. We live in a time of outrage. Thanks to Facebook and Twitter and various other electronic social media outlets, anybody can wake up in the morning and tell the whole world what's really ripped them off. Okay? Now that Donald Trump is our president, it's like parts of the news media and, and, and kind of like that Hollywood liberal elite, they're like losing their minds. They're so outraged. Okay, every day it seems like a race to kind of outrage another. It's like we've we're all offended by something. We become the United States of the offended. Okay, now I can imagine that over the years you have sat here and listened to me say something and thought, I don't know if I agree with that or I don't know if I believe that. Um, 
you know, maybe I said it wrong or maybe maybe you misunderstood what I was communicating. That was probably it, by the way. But thankfully, I am so grateful that you leave and you wait to criticize me when you get in the car, or when you get to the restaurant. OK, that's not what these Pharisees did. Jesus took the opportunity when those priests put out those candles to say, I am the light of the world. And they stood up and called him a liar right to his face. It'd be like one of you standing up right now and saying, forget it. You're ridiculous. I'm leaving. Thankfully, no one's ever done that. That's how tense this exchange was. But you see, the Pharisees were offended. They were so entrenched in their own darkness They couldn't recognize the light and it stood right in front of them. They were so self-moralized. They were so self-justified that they couldn't recognize their need for a savior. And I read something like that and I think things haven't changed because we're the same way. We're the same way. We tend in our culture to equate self-worth, impact on culture, by how many likes we have on a Facebook post. I have two questions and we'll quit. Do you know the light? Do you know the light? Do you really know him? Number two, does the light illuminate your path? The only way for God to transform you from the imagination of what he knows you can be, what even you might assume you could be one day, the only way to bring that into reality is to let his light shine on your life. Because knowing the light does what I've said all morning. Knowing the light, number one, it provides form to the formless, puts shape to a life maybe that's a little ragged around the edges. It fills what is empty and it illumines what is darkened. If you don't know the light, I got to tell you, that's why we're here. It's why I do this for a living. Please see me after the service. Grab John. Grab Tyler. Use the communication card. Give me your phone number. Put it in the offering container. Let me contact you this week because this, this is the secret to skillful life management. Not what you know, but who you know. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the privilege of looking into your word. Thank you for preserving it for these many centuries. God, inspire us with it. God, help us walk out of here today with a determination to simplify our faith. That we can find our answers in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in him I pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Thanks for putting up with my voice today. Make it a great week. I'll see you next time.